Alex Mosed. Welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. So, uh, as as one might expect, there's some new antitrust debacles going on. One is legitimate. One is, I think, kind of a little bit of a stretch. Um, so, for Facebook, there's a proposed federal class action lawsuit. Um, basically. You could many years ago, if you remember, you could make apps that integrate into Facebook. Uh, that's what we would call a development platform. And so a lot of these app developers would make integrations uh, into Facebook and then they could do things like uh, tap into your friends lists and and you could uh, try to create your own try to tap into your the the feeds of your existing users and then, by tapping into your existing users' friend lists, then you could try to expand the usage of your app uh, by using Facebook's ecosystem. Now, so these developers, I think there's a handful of them here that are all a party to this lawsuit, Reveal Chat, a messaging app, uh, Lendo, a lending service, Circle, an online marketplace, Beehive, an identity verification services, and LikeBright, a matchmaking app, I guess. Like, like a dating app. And so they're saying, Facebook faced an existential threat from mobile apps that could have responded by competing on the merits, but it instead chose to use, use its might to intentionally eliminate its competition. Facebook deliberately leveraged its developer platform and infrastructure of spyware and surveillance and its economic power to crush or acquire anyone that might compete with them. I'm so-so on this one. I think, I mean, the developer platform in general is basically kaput. I mean, you can kind of log into certain apps with your Facebook account, um, but there really isn't a strong Facebook development platform anymore. The Facebook developer platform was much stronger in the days of um, pre-smartphones, you know, uh, web browsers, you had Farmville, you had basically, uh, you know, Zynga was kind of built on the back of, of Facebook's development platform. When mobile apps came in, I mean, you had some apps that tried to take off. You saw the same thing with Twitter um, and uh, when, when live streaming came out and then, and then Twitter did Periscope and they shut down the ability for, God, I don't even remember the name of that live streaming app that everyone was going crazy over. Um, and then uh, they, they shut down your ability to notify people about when you were going live and all this kind of stuff. So you've kind of seen this happen. I think the challenge here is that Facebook, it might have learned from the information and it might have degraded access to its APIs, fine. But the big difference between Facebook and, and this claim or probably any antitrust claims that come from producers, that come from supply, that have been disadvantaged by the, by the large tech monopoly, is that Facebook, for the most part, really hasn't vertically integrated in any of these areas, um, messaging, you could say, sure. And then they went and, you know, bought WhatsApp for, um, however many billions of dollars. And, uh, and then they did Facebook messenger on their own, but you know, there's always an element of messaging in Facebook, even, you know, from almost day one. Um, so because Facebook wasn't vertically integrating and trying to directly compete against all of these apps, 
I think the argument just becomes a lot harder that they were doing this from an antitrust standpoint, that they were doing this to better their own, um, you know, their own initiatives or their, you know, put their profit before their customers, which would be these developers. I just don't see that argument as concretely here as we do with other large tech monopolies, which we've spoken about a lot, like a Google, like an Amazon. Um, that are absolutely vertically integrating, that are absolutely a direct beneficiary by cramming down their supply, which is a customer group, uh, and then taking advantage of them and then being a, a, you know, basically earning more money or more profit. Um, I don't see that same dynamic as concretely here. So in general, the Department of Justice and the FTC don't understand the argument that producers are customers too. So even if they did understand it, which they don't, that's one big problem. Um, but even if they did understand it, I don't think that dynamic plays itself out as concretely here for Facebook. Now, in other news, Amazon, which absolutely does have this dynamic, we know that the FTC and DOJ are investigating Amazon. The EU is investigating Amazon for how it treats its third-party sellers, but... They're analyzing how does Amazon treat its third-party sellers and what negative impact does that have on the end customer, right? They're trying to, they keep on trying to make that, that last jump to the end consumer and they don't even need to bother doing that. If they just say a producer is a customer and therefore the customers are put at a disadvantage when you take advantage of your suppliers, that's your case. But for some reason, they want to always go back to the end consumer and just overcomplicate things. So anyway, PopSocket CEO, you know what PopSockets are? You know, in the back of your iPhone or, or, you know, put the little snappy thing and you can hold on to the phone and you can brand it with company swag and logos and all that stuff. Anyway, they do like hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. There's a, um, a house committee interview. You had the CEO of Sonos uh, and a couple other executives from companies that that are talking about how Amazon's taking advantage of them and, and being, you know, too aggressive. I'm going to play the clip here with the CEO talking about how, how Amazon took advantage of them. Today, I want to talk about two challenges that we've had with Amazon, uh, one involving counterfeits, uh, the other involving uh, bullying or strong arming. So we started our, our direct relationship with Amazon about a year and a half into business. So the middle of 2016. We started selling product uh, to Amazon. Amazon, in turn, would sell our product on the marketplace. Um, it was immensely successful. Within five months, Amazon became our largest uh, customer, and we became one of Amazon's uh, most significant players in the uh, mobile, ele mobile electronics accessory category. Uh, we were, uh, pop sockets was the number three search term at some point on Amazon. So we had immense success, but uh, despite the success, we, we never felt like we had a genuine partnership with Amazon. So the problem of counterfeits is the first problem I'll talk about. We had enormous amounts of, of fake product uh, that were taking our sales, creating bad uh, customer experiences. And of course it was illegal. So illegal activity on behalf of those selling them. And when Amazon was the seller, Amazon was clearly engaged in this illegal activity and multiple times we discovered that Amazon itself had sourced counterfeit product and was selling it alongside our own product. For a year and a half, we requested that Amazon take some action. 
some serious action and just require evidence from sellers that they were selling authentic product. Uh, after a year and a half, finally, uh, uh, in exchange for about $1.8 million of retail marketing funds, which my, my team deemed ineffective, Amazon agreed to work with their brand registry department to require this evidence, and things then changed dramatically. Uh, so uh, that problem uh, largely went away. There was another problem of knockoffs, products not using the PopSockets name that took a, a while longer to go away. At one point, we were, we were reporting 1,000 listings a day of fakes. Every day, 1,000 different listings of fakes that were eating away at, at our, um, our revenue and, and really harming our brand, too. So that's interesting, right? What he's saying is, I think they had, it sounded like they had a, a 1P relationship with Amazon where Amazon's the reseller of the product sounded that way. Um, and, but Amazon was double dipping where they had the relationship directly with pop sockets and then they were sourcing it from third parties and then selling it as pop socket product, but it wasn't verified as authentic. And then the company was saying, Hey, this is counterfeit stuff. This isn't actually pop socket product. And you're letting people sell it as pop socket stuff but it's not pop socket and they didn't do anything about it for a year and a half. $1.8 million. Not clear if that was just the marketing team saying, Hey, we burned through this money on ads on Amazon or something like that. Or if they actually made a payment to Amazon of $1.8 million for Amazon to get serious about taking down counterfeit product, which as he pointed out, they relatively easily could take down that third party inventory because they already had the relationship directly with the manufacturer. So, that's point one. Next, I want to turn to bullying, uh, the lack of a symmetrical partnership. The way Amazon works is, you know, we sign an agreement together. So there's what's, what's in the written record of the agreement. Everything looks good. We decide on a sell price, sell price to Amazon. Then what happens in practice is that Amazon decides what price they want to sell to the consumer for. And after they do this, often lowering the price, they come back to us and demand funding. To, for their loss margin when they lower their price. There's nothing in our agreement that says that, that we're required to pay for this, and yet they say we need this, we expect this. The bullying begins. We decided to end our relationship with Amazon over this. This was one reason we cited when we gave to Amazon. Their response was, no, you're not leaving the relationship. I found that unbelievable that they would tell us that we were going to continue in the relationship after we told them that bullying was was uh, the main reason we were leaving. So what this guy's talking about, I haven't even talked about these issues, right? What he's saying is we had a contract with Amazon that they would sell our products and there was a floor for how much they'd sell the products for. And then he says that Amazon would just go make up the price that they would want to sell it for and bill his company <laughs> for the difference and say, oh, well, you know, we had to lower the price. And... um so you owe us like a million, $1.2 million, David. And so you're going to pay that. And they would do it all over the phone. So there's no written record of any of this. But Amazon, Amazon just knows that they have so much leverage over them and that they want to provide, you know, the best price or whatever their algorithms or, or their pricing algorithms are telling them, hey, we need to offer it at this price. Okay, the algo goes down. And, um, and then they hit up David's company for for the Delta. 
and say, hey, well, you got to cover this. Um, so that's a whole other ball game of what what we've talked about on the show, which is that when you aren't, this is a manufacturer. This is saying um, that when you are a third party seller, that we've seen examples where where you're a third party seller, you're a distributor, you're selling stuff on Amazon. Amazon asks you for the purchase order to verify that your stuff is authentic, which what you heard David say is they had a thousand listings a day that they identified as counterfeit for their inventory. They weren't taking this stuff down for a year and a half. Yet, when Amazon's trying to figure out who your manufacturer is, they are real quick to say, hey, I need that purchase order to make sure that this inventory is legit. Um, and then magically, they look at the purchase order and they figure out who your supplier is, and then they go directly to the supplier and now cut you, the third-party seller, out of the transaction. So there's all kinds of stuff here, right? These are the kinds of cases um, where you can say, hey, look, who is Amazon making its money off of? Um, they are charging fees to the third-party seller. This company is actually paying them, you know, has, has agreements for this. It's a little bit tougher in the one P party in the one P structure, though. I will say, if if these guys are a one P, it's a little bit tougher for the producer as a customer relationship to be verified because technically, in one P, um, Amazon is buying product from the third party seller. In this case, PopSocket. In the 3P, the third-party seller relationship, right? Amazon's not taking inventory. They're not actually taking ownership over that product. They are just letting you sell through the marketplace. And then you pay 10 or 15% of the overall price, purchase price to Amazon. It's a little bit different structure of a relationship. That 3P structure is a much cleaner uh, relationship to show that producers are customers. And as, as Jeff Bezos detailed in his annual report, April of last year, 2019, that through the year of 2018, 58% of the products sold on Amazon were actually from third-party sellers in that 3P relationship. So it's actually the majority of products that are being sold on Amazon do fit that model. I think we're inviting David to come on the show. I think that they were 1P. Um, now, they... He goes on to say that they also had a verified dealer. Basically, David goes on to say that they eventually told Amazon to go screw and that they're actually not going to sell their stuff on Amazon anymore. Amazon then uh, continued to take down all of their listings and boot off any verified authorized distributors of PopSocket as well. Those distributors probably had more of a 3P type relationship with Amazon, which is what I'm talking about. And so you could probably find some some funny games that they were playing on that side. And then this producer is customer two argument fits much more nicely. Um, it's just interesting thing to highlight here. This this may not be the best example to say, hey, this was antitrust because you need to show that these guys are a producer. Um, the Congress is probably looking at this and saying, well, OK, look, hey, this is actually hurting the end customer. But again, as we've spoken about. It's just too loose of an affiliation. That's never really going to stick um, in five to 10 years when you're done going through the court system. It's just, there's just not enough meat there. You got to simplify this, focus on producers or customers. But I'm sure David has some other examples or some other, say, like 
this, the, these authorized dealers of theirs, those kinds of things that you could show um, that as a third party seller, as a customer, uh, they were being taken advantage of. Or maybe I'm just misinterpreting it a little bit in terms of exactly what he's getting at. Um, so hopefully more to come on that front. Uh, okay. Now, how do you know that a company is actually being successful, like a large tech monopoly is beating the traditional incumbents? It's when the traditional incumbents cry a foul. Um, in the sense that uh, you have in, in healthcare, we've covered Google Health, we've covered um, David Feinberg, they, they, they had that whole... Uh, you know, all the media was in an uproar about, oh, Google has access to a few million medical records at Ascension Health, this hot, this healthcare system. What we spoke about on the show is, you know what? Actually, a bunch of people have access to health records. Um, there's just an article in the Wall Street Journal today that shows that Microsoft and IBM also have access. I've spoken about how many pharma companies also have access to millions of medical records at large healthcare systems. It's not actually that big of a deal. Um, I think Google Health is making really good software for these physicians and for these healthcare systems. And David and the team demoed uh, what some of that is. I call it the Google operating system for the doctor. Um, and I think they're going to do fantastically well with it. Now, you want to know why? I think I'm on to the right track here because Epic is coming out and they don't want to work with Google anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously like privacy is the blanket concern that Epic is citing, you know, that the, this is the reason why we just can't work with Google anymore. Oh no, not because Google health could be seen as a threat to what Epic is doing and a much better alternative to the software, the, the EHR software Epic is the largest EMR software provider in the United States between Epic and Cerner. They have over 50% market share. I think it might be around 56. It could be higher. Those numbers are a little bit older. 56% market share um, of EHR software in these hospitals. Um, they have billions and billions of dollars in revenue. It's a private company. They um, have all of these big on-premise installations, which basically means these hospitals sink hundreds of millions of dollars. And these are multi-year initiatives to put all of the software into place at each hospital. And so Epic uh, locks in these customers deliberately. It's not by chance. And they don't want to open up the data stored in the system, right? There's like the whole idea of what Salesforce did with the cloud like 20 years ago now. Um, and how your data is easily accessible from the cloud. And, and we've covered how Salesforce is in plat because they have over a billion dollars in revenue coming from third-party app developers, building apps on top of the Salesforce APIs and all of these wonderful things, right? Um, it's very similar to the, the type of software, this EHR software, right? I'm a hospital. I have data stored in this software system. If I could have that in the cloud, and what the cloud helps me do is it helps standardize, maybe not everything, but like 80% of the data in there is roughly standardized and, and the field structure and the data structure is roughly the same way, right? Kind of like what Salesforce is. And then you can customize it. You know, you get the 20% of customization. Why that's so important is when you're a third-party developer and you want to build an app, 
that can now provide value to the end customer based on the data stored in Salesforce or let's say Epic or Google Health in this case, um, Google, the Google OS for doctors. And, um, uh, or you create an app that actually uh, does or, or improves the quality of the data in the system, right? Salesforce has a whole slew of apps, uh, companies worth billions of dollars actually, and all they do is actually do data quality, clean up, clean up bad data, duplicate data, wonky data, um, add additional metadata to existing records. It's a whole industry of just improving data um, in the actual system. So there's a whole other slew of apps. Now, if you have 80% of the data is roughly standardized, say medical uh, data, think about all the apps that you could build on top of these APIs to then clean up that data and add additional, say, metadata to that patient record. Endless amount of opportunity and value created for the end user, in this case, the physician. So um, I think Google is well on their way. Epic is scared, as they should be. And um, then and then as we've talked about, you know, this is why I don't like HIPAA. Uh, this is why the regulation just becomes what the incumbents fall behind uh, and say, oh, you know, privacy this, privacy that. Oh, we can't, you know, this disruption, these new tech companies coming in here, you can't trust them. We have to stop integrating with them. And so think about the hospitals that are now providing data to Google. If you have uh, Epic, which has, say, let's just say 30% market share, you can guarantee that that throws a big wrench in Google's ability to actually roll out their products to hospitals if epic says well i'm not going to integrate with google because it's a privacy concern i mean come on the irony continues so there's actually a law passed the interoperability act or something like that interoperability of electronic health information literally this is something that's coming from the u.s department of health and human services to say hey ehr systems you need to let your data be interoperable amongst different um, EHR systems, right? This was literally the whole point of the directive. The, um, uh, the, the MedTech conference I was at maybe two falls ago, 2018 in Philadelphia, everyone was talking about this. You have the, the head of all the government agencies there saying this is going to be good. And I've, I've been a skeptic on this working. Um, I don't think it's going to work because, you know, they'll probably take a two year commission to figure out how all the data is going to be interoperable. And then it'll be two more years to implement all of the stuff and then it won't work. And you'll be four years behind where you should have been. And, and so I just don't have any faith that this initiative will work. Data transparency is a good thing. I just don't I just know how entrenched these incumbents are and how resistant to change they are. I would say the worst incumbents in the healthcare industry are these EHR companies. Now, maybe not all of them, but certainly Epic, especially because they're coming out publicly and against this, you know, in uh, opposition to what Google is doing. We invest substantial time and engineering effort in evaluating and understanding the infrastructure Epic runs on. Scalability, reliability, da 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 When we, we take all these things into account, said Epic's Vice President of Research and Development, Seth Hain. Uh, he said, Epic focuses on supporting infrastructure the Epic community uses today and is likely to use in the future. <laughs> like, uh, so. 
one of the health system customers who got the call said this could impact their data sharing and aggregation efforts going forward. This person said medical record providers such as Epic and its chief rival Cerner uh, are picky with data sharing standards. And withdrawing support for Google would make it risky for the hospital system to keep using it. It's horrible stuff. It really is horrible stuff. Um, we did see Allscripts make a deal. I think they're the fifth largest EHR. We did see Allscripts make a deal with Apple Health to let patients easily access their medical record uh, through Apple Health. And of course, other incumbents came out against that. Under what veil? Under what reason? Oh, yeah, of course, privacy. Um, this is why I was on a panel last spring of uh, April 2019 at the Milken Conference in L.A. And, and, the, and the subject of the panel was, can the world's largest companies disrupt healthcare? And guess who the, are the world's largest companies? Tech platform companies. Um, and, I, and, and basically, you know, I'm all about helping incumbents. I'm all about incumbents have all these intrinsic assets. They're not leveraging them properly. They can go and create their own platform models, build from scratch, build and buy, some mixture of the, all that stuff, and they can be successful. Um, you know, we cover Walmart a lot and all these companies that, that, that we're rooting for, and we want them to be able to have, to be able to be competitive in this 21st century economy. Except for healthcare. Healthcare is the one industry where it really needs to be disrupted by the large tech monopolies. And they're doing all of us a service. And actually, Tim Cook has said the same thing. He feels like maybe one of, one of the greatest impacts of his tenure as CEO will be what Apple is doing in healthcare and how they can change that industry for the better. And um, all of this privacy stuff just really kind of brings me back to say, how stupid do these incumbents think that either the patients are in the case of the incumbents pushing back against the Allscripts Apple Health deal, or for this matter, the hospitals? The hospitals are the ones doing these deals with Google. Um, so you're saying, Epic, that all these hospitals are too dumb to understand the privacy, negative privacy implications of doing deals with Google Health uh, or Google Cloud? Is that what you're saying, Epic, Mr. Um, Mr. Vice President Seth Hain? Because it certainly sounds that way. These companies can understand the privacy implications. They can weigh the risks and the pros of working with Google and helping Google create awesome software that is solving a real need for the industry. How can you lower the cost of care, improve quality? Um, and you can actually do both of those things. But you need to do two things. You need to improve uh, data transparency and you need to, uh, both when it comes to the medical record, when it comes to pricing information, which you've seen other rules here, um, promoting hospitals to reveal their pricing that they pay to health insurers. Hospitals are now suing the government for having uh, issued this, this directive. So again, just literally every single direction that you see an attempt to open up data, to open up transparency, to bring new technologies to the industry, to just promote openness, you see the industry, the incumbents, automatically push back, and every time it's under the excuse of privacy. It's a joke. It's a joke. Uh, and so I hope Google sticks, stays strong. I expect they will. 
And, um, you know, Epic really deserves everything that it has coming to it. And I would bet you that most of the hospitals would agree with that statement. I don't know any doctors that like to use Epic. Um, okay. Power to you, Google. Google Cloud, Tom Kirian, and all the gang. Um, okay, Airbnb. So, everyone knows what Airbnb is. So, we predict that Airbnb, Airbnb is, gonna, is going to IPO in 2020. Uh, it would then, of course, be inducted into Plat. Absolutely a platform business. Um, and um, I don't even know what, what kind of linear revenue they have. It's probably almost all platform revenue. And um, they have, obviously, you can book homes. You can book now experiences from third-party providers, kind of like replacing the concierge at a hotel. You can, um, and then what they also did is they acquired Hotel Tonight a little less than a year ago. So they bought Hotel Tonight which is like Expedia for booking hotel rooms. And so for the longest time, you had this kind of Chinese wall between Airbnb inventory, which was like, think about it as like user-generated inventory. It's my home, it's my apartment, putting on Airbnb. Um, and you had the Chinese wall between that inventory and hotel inventory, right? And uh, what you saw leading up to this over the past number of years, if you've seen, you've seen a lot of hotel consolidation. Um, and that strategy can work. If you are an incumbent and you see platform disruption coming into your industry, if you can consolidate supply, um, like in healthcare, restricting data from opening up, in the hotel industry, that would be a lot of these M&A and roll-ups that you see amongst the, um, the hotels. So there's a massive merger between Marriott and Starwood Hotel um, a handful of years ago now. Big, I think maybe $14 billion deal. Big deal. That put Marriott... As, as the top um, hotel, almost a million rooms of inventory, may, no, maybe more globally, uh, this is North American rooms. There's probably somewhere around seven-ish, eight million rooms of inventory, certainly over five million rooms of inventory in uh, North America for hotels. <clears throat> you can kind of see the distribution here. And beyond this, there's a lot of craft hotels that have, you know, only a few locations, five to 10 locations, you know, these more kind of boutique, um, unique experience type of hotels. And so certainly you don't see that. All the, these hotels have at least 100,000 rooms in them. So there's still a, a pretty good amount of fragmentation when you look at the hotel supply landscape. Um, all of that basically means is that Airbnb is able to get a wedge into the door um, by buying hotel tonight by eventually competing with hotels on their own turf. And um, could there eventually be a merging of inventory between Hotel Tonight and Airbnb? You know, could I be on Airbnb and actually compare and contrast between uh, booking a hotel room and booking a, an apartment? I think so. I think eventually they will connect these two, um, these two destinations and connect the inventory and uh, that's only going to just increase optionality for the consumer. What does Airbnb really care? Um, you're just giving a, a better experience because now I, as the consumer, have more choice. Do I want the Airbnb experience or do I want the hotel experience? Oh, great. Airbnb is giving me both of these things. Wonderful. Um, I would expect to see something like that in, in the future. Um, and, and so basically, Marriott bought Starwood. And then I think in the past four months, uh, 
Arnie, the CEO of Marriott, said, you know, we're going to we're going to beat Airbnb. And he said, we're coming after you, Airbnb. Horrible decision. Um, we covered that on the show. They have absolutely zero chance of beating Airbnb. It's not just Airbnb anymore. There's VRBO. Um, there's Booking.com. So uh, Expedia owns VRBO. I mean, there's big players in this, um, you know, user-generated uh, home inventory type of listings. So Airbnb has done some other acquisitions for luxury home inventory and that kind of stuff. But um, there's no way that a traditional hotel brand can come and compete on Airbnb's turf. We've spoken about the best thing for a hotel to try and do is to create a hotel on Airbnb in in the sense of how can I, there's these companies like Sonder and I think another one called Domeo, which just raised a lot of money, um, which are trying to create an experience and a brand on Airbnb so that when I book a Sonder or a Domeo apartment on Airbnb, I'm going to have a certain expectation of quality service. You know, what's the furniture? What's what's the apartment going to feel like, be set up like uh, with the consumer? So you can start to kind of have these, these known brands on Airbnb. That to me would be the play if I was, uh, say, the head of Marriott. Um, anyway, so with Airbnb going public, and um and uh and and what they're going to be able to get from that is you know i think they get to bring some liquidity to their um you know to their to their lps to their employees and uh they could also just be more aggressive and i think competing with hotels on their own turf they really have their market pretty locked down um we're seeing them move into uh, more business listings w- with Airbnb. They bought a company from Graystar in 2019. Graystar is a big real estate um, uh, firm in the United States. And so they bought this business from Graystar that provides 90-day rentals to businesses. So if you have employees and they, they you know, they need to have like a temporary, but, but permanent, but still temporary location, uh, they bought this company to help get that kind of inventory. So we see them making small different bolt-on acquisitions to the core business. We see them now going into some new industries uh, like hotels, experiences, and and these kinds of things, really flexing some of that, what we call that platform conglomerate muscle. Um, Airbnb, just by the numbers, has raised about $4.4 billion, recently had a $31 billion valuation, it's over 6 million listings by comparison to uh, Marriott in North America, under a million. No way Marriott has more than 3 million listings globally. Um, they're in over 100,000 cities and they have 2 million guests staying in an Airbnb location every night. Um, another indicator about an IPO this year would be that they're really, uh, Brian Chesky, the co-founder, just in October, at the DealBook conference, it was also at New York, announced that they are putting kind of stricter rules on vetting for supply. Um, so stricter verification ru- rules if you're listing a property on Airbnb, stricter rules on verifying who is going to stay in an Airbnb, so on the consumer. And you can see they're really trying to beef up um, some of these uh, like managed services component. If, if you need customer support, if something goes wrong, they have like a neighborhood line. So if 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 something's going wrong in your neighborhood because your neighbor put their place on Airbnb, they have now a support line that you can call as the neighbor because something, you know, there's a party going and, and you know, Airbnb wants to know about that. So they're 
I think they're they're being pretty responsible here in terms of how they are um, putting some rules and standards into place to ensure they have the right quality at scale. Particularly when you IPO, these kinds of things could then really have a, a big negative impact on the company, take big bites out of their stock price uh, when you're public. We have seen this work in the other direction for Oyo, the SoftBank-funded um, hotel marketplace in India and Southeast Asia, which was go- growing like crazy at a bunch of wonky subpar quality on the marketplace and is now scaling back and all these things. We just covered that on the show a few days ago. Uh, okay. So next week we have some interesting IP, uh, not IPOs, uh, earnings announcements on the horizon. So we're going to have, um, Apple, Alibaba, Facebook, and Amazon all coming up in the first half of next week. This is right, right, right at the end of January. Um, I think in general, you know, it tends that these companies tend to beat earnings. You know, more often than not, they're able to beat earnings, especially when you have that platform monopoly power. You have a lot of ability to, again, take advantage of your suppliers and make sure that you beat your earnings or at least hit them. So it, more often than not, they hit. I think that um, I think that they should be all able to hit earnings. I think the question of how well they do um, after they release earnings comes down to a few different factors. So everyone's going to be looking at for Apple, for example, Apple TV Plus. Um, I don't. I am not too bullish on Apple TV Plus. I think Apple has. A lot of ability to force its users, or not force, but you know, pleasantly push um, its users to sign up for it, and it's free. So you might have a lot of folks that have signed up. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near where Disney uh, Disney Plus is, which we just covered. We think is now over forty million subscribers in about three months' time. Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus pretty much launched right around the same time. I don't think Apple TV's shows have been really doing as well uh, as, say, The Mandalorian, which is a massive hit. Baby Yoda fans know what I'm talking about. And um, now, that said, I don't think that that's the major driver for Apple. I think for for Apple, the trade news um, is a big boon to them, where now the, you know, the, the trade wars have kind of been put on pause, um, and hopefully the supply chains can settle down a little bit, and um, consumer tensions can, can ease a little bit. I think you know, it's just Q4. So how many phones do they sell over the holidays? That's really going to be the major driver. By 2021, Apple, Tim Cook had made a commitment to have at least $50 billion in services revenue, um, of which Apple TV Plus is a small chunk of that. Maybe five to $10 billion can they get from Apple TV Plus revenue, which they probably still could do even with lackluster numbers. I don't think that was a huge target, $50 billion uh, annually by the end of 2021. So I don't think that's a huge stretch goal in the first place. Um, I think it's more so just how how did Apple's products fare over the holidays? Um, they added a third camera to their flagship phone. That was the biggest news from the fall. And actually, that f- that third camera makes a big difference. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like generally... Um, Apple should be faring pretty well going into into their earnings release here. Um, Alibaba, similarly, where you know these companies were able to reset expectations around trade 
And I think that, uh, you know, for these two companies, this is probably some of the, the, the biggest things that, that people are going to look at. We are seeing Alibaba try to make a push uh, globally, which we're going to touch on in a little bit uh, about how they've tried to push coming into the United States. We do see them now trying to push into Europe. Uh, we see them trying to do some things in the United States. How can Alibaba expand out of China and Southeast Asia? Um, I don't think that's going to make too much of a difference in this quarter's earnings results. But going forward, I think that what we're starting to see for them is that they are they are signaling that they need to be able to expand outside of just China, Southeast Asia in order to keep up their rate of growth. Uh, I have some doubts on their ability to be successful on that in the United States. Eastern Europe, though, I would say seems like a much better environment to me. So getting some indication of how that's doing uh, from, from their earnings call next week. See if they even talk about it or not, disclose anything. But that to me could be an interesting growth opportunity where you can see Alibaba and Amazon uh, go head to head on that. So um, Amazon's also going to have earnings. I, it just the, the, the cheat code that Amazon has is, is their ad revenue. Uh, the ad revenue has just been going bonkers and they have so much control to be able to juice that ad revenue um, and, and use that. Ad. Basically it just all goes to their bottom line. So you know, out of all of these companies, I feel the most bullish about Amazon um, over the probably short, mid and long term. And um, and then Facebook, there's actually a report recently that Facebook is is easing off of trying to roll out ads on WhatsApp, which I thought was interesting. That was also what pushed the co-founders to leave Facebook was because they didn't want to incorporate ads um, into WhatsApp. So now kind of interesting that well, they lost the two co-founders and now they're, all, they're also going to pause rolling out these ads. I don't think that makes a material difference uh, for their earnings release that's coming up. But, um, you know, uh, I wonder if they'll touch on that and, and what their plan is with that. Because that was a huge push. Hey, it's time we got to monetize and, and roll out ads on these things. Um, but generally, yeah, I mean, what we've seen over the past three to six months is that these platform companies are continuing to outperform. They're continuing to reinvest in new growth initiatives. Um, and their stock prices have, have, all stocks have been doing pretty well, but their stocks in particular have been doing quite fantastically. Um, okay. So let's look at a couple examples of foreign platform monopolies in their respective markets, namely Asia. Coming into the United States. So let's look at Rakuten. People don't know what Rakuten is. Rakuten is basically like the Amazon of Japan. Um, they do a variety of things beyond just shopping. They do payments. They do content. They do a bunch of things in Japan. Um, and uh, famously, their founder a few, a few years ago decided to say, hey, you know, we need to be a global company. We need to hire engineers around the world. And therefore, we are going to all speak English from here on forward. And I can tell you that Japan did not appreciate that decision. Um, basically, I think the whole country kind of revolted and said, you're actually a horrible person. You don't represent Japan. And if you know anything about Japan, they take a lot of pride in certain cultural things, namely their language. <laughs> and this guy decided 
that one of the biggest and most loved companies in Japan, Rakuten, the founder, said, nope, we all need to speak English now. That's a big deal. It really, from what I've heard, has not been going over too, too well. There's been a lot of issues with this transition. He also did it in kind of a, just, I'm just going to rip the Band-Aid off this, in a very aggressive uh, way. It was not seemingly eased into. He wrote a book about it, actually, after the fact, I think, trying to explain his position on it. And I understand his reasons because there. another interesting thing, interesting fact about Japan, 90% of the software engineers in Japan are employed by the IT service providers in Japan, right? So it's a very different environment than the United States, Europe, China, just about anywhere else in the world. When you think about just a startup community, when you think about where tech engineers are employed, um, 90% in these large IT kind of integration vendor companies. The other thing to know about Japan, you probably know this, is that you pretty much work at the same place for your whole life. The idea of kind of having a job for a few years and then switching, it does not happen in Japan. Um, there's a lot of loyalty to the organization. And so for that reason, there isn't as much of a kind of transient labor market, especially when it comes to engineers. So you put that all together, Rakuten has massive growth, and he's saying, the founder's saying, I need engineers. Where do I get engineers? Oh, there's all these engineers around the world, but they don't speak Japanese. Hence, we're now all going to speak English. Um, well, anyway, let's go back to them coming into the United States. So now they're coming into the United States. They've actually had a few attempts at this. Um, in 2010, they bought this company called Buy.com for $250 million. Interestingly enough, they changed Buy.com to be called Rakuten and changed the domain. And Buy.com was actually a marketplace. You had merchants, you had tens of thousands of merchants, you had buyers. And so it was actually a marketplace that they bought um, in the United States. And um, it ultimately didn't do that well, but... That was their first foray at coming into the U.S. Then, uh, in 2014, they bought Ebates for a billion dollars. Kind of a little bit under the radar acquisition. Ebates, you know, you kind of get, you get like rewards. You get cash back for shopping. So if you go to Ebates and you buy stuff through them, then um, you get like a check in the mail. That kind of stuff, right? So, it's a marketplace in that sense. I mean, there's 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 a, a large number of kind of like retail partners, but they're not going directly down to the third party merchant, which is what Rakuten does in Japan. So, you know, the direct merchants are actually they have stores and they're selling on Rakuten's marketplace. Uh, they have GMV and, and all that fun stuff. So this is a little bit of a different model. But again, this is a, a foothold um, for how Ebates and, and now Rakuten was trying to get traction. If you've been watching the NFL playoffs at all, you've probably seen some of these Rakuten commercials promoting cash back and rewards. That is because it's from Ebates. That is the company they bought. And um, I think they are, you know, they're, they're getting much more brand recognition um, with this initiative. They've sponsored the Warriors. They've, you know, they're starting to spend a lot of money to just try and kind of increase the brand recognition, the brand presence that Rakuten has in the United States. So um, they're trying to take a multi-pronged approach going directly to the consumer and, um, and trying to get into this B2C space. 
In Japan, one of the big things that they promote, different than saying Amazon, as we've been covering, where Amazon really pulverizes their third-party sellers. Um, Rakuten is all about kind of supporting the small mom-and-pop sellers. They put a lot of tools on the website. There's a lot of videos and content that they create, like, hey, we help sellers communicate with shoppers, and and you can chat with them, and and you can might even be able to talk to them. You know, you have all these tools that you can integrate and kind of create an audience and 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 create relationships with your customers and all these kinds of things, right? So um, they're very much so about helping the merchant and customer connect more directly um, than what you see in the Amazon model. So how can they try and bring that to the United States? We'll see, but this is their first foothold. They've been spending a lot of money in the United States. Um, and uh, I think, you know, so this is certainly going much better than buy.com. I think the challenge is, you know, what do you do next, right? Like, how do you actually go? Do you just remain like this? Or how do you actually go down to the actual inventory? How do you actually go down to the specific seller, manufacturer, distributor? Um, because the economics of this are just going to be difficult to scale it as aggressively as you would like if you are a layer on top of other retailers. Um, like there's a list here of, you know, Macy's, Best Buy, Home Depot. They have over 2,600 stores. And in 2013, over $2.2 billion was spent through Ebates. So maybe they can continue to command these kinds of uh, cashback and, and rebates. You know, it kind of reminds me of the uh, PayPal acquisition with, of Honey, where we were talking about that. Um, you know, how well does the Ebates purchasing experience translate to mobile, for example, versus kind of being a, a website? desktop browser experience. I think those questions remain to be answered. Um, but certainly, you know, one thing that we see them doing is buying marketplaces that have good existing demand. And then how can they fuel that with the other brand promotion, you know, the bankroll that they can do to now bring that into the United States uh, and start to scale that business? So it's, uh, it's an interesting model, different than Alibaba. Alibaba uh, was, you know, it's kind of a few different iterations of this. So Alibaba business um, was working with this company called OpenSky. This article says it sold its U.S. operations to OpenSky in 2015 and took an equity stake in OpenSky. Then, um, Later, they acquired all of OpenSky. That's kind of interesting. Um, so they acquired all of OpenSky. What OpenSky was slash is, is it's a network of businesses that empower modern global trade for SMBs. Um, basically, it provides a bunch of tools to third-party sellers and merchants so that they can help get discoverability, help sell their products, um, presumably through Alibaba and other websites. So it's a lot of like tools for sellers, right? Different than Rakuten coming in and buying demand, buying an end-to-end -end marketplace. Um, OpenSky didn't own the demand. They were more so tapping into other sources of demand and helping sellers um, plug into those different networks, right? 
So really representing these SMBs, these third-party sellers. What Alibaba is now doing is they have announced a couple initiatives. One, um, they announced that they are partnering with Office Depot. So think about if Alibaba and OpenSky have supply with third-party sellers, they're now bringing that supply to sources of demand like Office Depot. So Office Depot is saying, hey, I can, I can tap into Alibaba's supply and their marketplace of sellers and inventory and plug that into my e-commerce experience. And then now these two companies have some kind of uh, partnership arrangement. Office Depot was in a lot of trouble. Interesting why Alibaba doesn't try and do an acquisition of its own on the demand side. I don't know if it's because Alibaba corporate doesn't want to spend, say, make a multi-billion dollar acquisition. A, maybe they're also scared that the U.S. CIS, you know, our, our U.S. regulatory uh, committees would actually shut that down and not allow that, trend, that acquisition to go through. Um, I'm not sure. They haven't done that. The other thing they've done is said, hey, we're going to also help sellers sell to China and to through Alibaba. And so to how can we bring Alibaba's demand to Open Sky's supply? That's an easy no-brainer. That makes a lot of sense. I think we see um, Rakuten's model to try and get demand. How can I do sponsorships, build brand presence and recognition amongst consumers? For Alibaba, I think this is still unknown in terms of how are they going to channel demand um, aggressively, say, in the United States? How are they going to close this loop on a marketplace model? Again, they're going to just continue doing these partnerships. I don't think these partnerships just grow on trees. Um, are they going to look at doing M&A? That, to me, would be the natural place to go. I don't know if there's other reasons why they're not doing that, but I think you've got to own the demand at scale. If you're actually going to be able to compete with, say, Amazon business in the United States um, aggressively versus the type of stuff that the Chinese consumer and the type of sellers that you want in the United States, if just that's a different core transaction, then here are the business buyers in the United States. What do those business buyers need? And uh, so on and so forth. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this one goes. I think this one has a little bit more unknown associated with it than some of what Rakuten's been able to prove. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining, and we will talk to you tomorrow.